the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Starting with Mr. Bobby Osinski. Bobby, it's so good to see you. Likewise, Mike. Good to see you, too. Hi, everybody. Followed by Mr. Nick Peck. Well, good evening, Mike, and good evening, gentlemen. It is such a pleasure, as always. And uh, right next to him, we've got Mr. Brandon Birdside. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Good to see everyone. Finally, we've got the Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast. This is show number 208, Mr. Rob Arbiter. Wow. That's a lot of shows. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey, uh, I just want to uh, welcome everybody to the podcast. And first, right off the bat, I just want to thank uh, everybody. You know, the, the last two weeks, you know, I had to take a break because my uh, father passed away. But let me just tell you, all these guys around here and even the guys that aren't right now, everybody sent me just some really great um, emails and notes and messages. And, and man, you guys, you guys are family, man. Seriously, it was just really hard heartfelt and really touching when everybody reached out. So I just want to thank all you guys here. And, and, you know, this is, even if we only had three listeners, I'd still want to do this, you know, every week because it's just great to, to just bring a community together and bring, bring your tribe. And this is my tribe, you know, these are, these are my friends and, and it's just really, it's really awesome. And, and uh, so I just have to say thank you. And I have to say thank you to the listeners that some of you guys who sent me uh, DMs and, and uh, emails and stuff like that. It was really touching and I really appreciate that. Um, having said all that, you know, it's, I need to come back and we need to start this thing up and it's just really good. And, and thankfully, um, you know, when you deal with, with something as traumatic as, as death, it's just really interesting to see what happens to your life and what happens and and that we're going to start right off the bat and one of the things that that I wanted to talk to you guys about is is music and how music and your creativity how that plays into when you when you when you have to go through some traumatic things you know i'll be honest i was really surprised how i actually lost my taste for music you know right off the bat it was really like you know for me, I've always preached music being such a thing of comfort and being such a thing of like, you know, to help you get through stuff. But I couldn't listen to music, you know? I, I just, I just, there wasn't anything. You know what it was? It was this feeling like I didn't have, like anything anybody had to say didn't make sense to me. Just didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't reaching me. It wasn't, I I didn't care what they had to say. I didn't care about any love song. I didn't care about anything like that. It was, it was just being in this moment of grief and and not wanting to go there. Um, And I don't know, have you guys ever experienced anything like that? I don't want to get too, you know, too personal, but just, you know, it's just really weird how music didn't do it for me. And this is what, you know, this was what the podcast is all about. We preach audio, we preach all this stuff, but it was really interesting how I just, I lost for a good week, week and a half. I just lost, lost interest. I mean, I I was into creating and I did some music on my own, but I couldn't, I couldn't listen to that. Any, anybody have anything that to add to anything like that? You ever experienced anything like that? 
Well, I mean, we're, we're complex people. You know, you're not just a musician. You're not just a composer, Mike. You're a person. And we have all of these different layers to us. And I certainly know that when I lost my mom, that was the, you know, thinking about listening to music at that point was the least important thing because that wasn't part of the layer that I was the, the, the layer of grief that I was processing at that time. But what I will tell you is, you know, two months later when I put together her memorial service, music was a huge part of it. And I rented a piano and I put it on the stage and I brought a guitar and, you know, ended up singing Let It Be in the Long and Winding Road and In My Life and Where Have All the Flowers Gone and Blowing in the Wind, all of these songs that were meaningful to her. And I felt like it was a lovely way in that context to, to honor her memory. And at that point, music was very vibrant and very important to me. You know, I can, I can see that. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense is about being, not being ready in whatever stage of grief that you're in. Um, because now, <clears throat> you know, only recently, you know, as I, it was weird. It was almost like a light switch that came on. Like after we took care of some stuff and things were happening, it was like one day I wasn't ready. And then the next day I, I was ready. It's like, okay, I'm ready to, to kind of come back, you know? And, and I think, you know, I think a little bit is being, you know, just you're kind of protecting yourself, but I think also um, it's who we are. There's a certain element of like, okay, you've grieved and really time does kind of take the edge away, but now you kind of have to get back into who you are. And music is such a big part of my life. What's really interesting is I'm going to tell this one story and then, you know, I don't want, we have plenty of other things to talk about, so I just don't want to keep it here. But as soon as I was ready to talk about music and as soon as I was ready to, to listen to music, um, one song popped into my head and one incident popped into my head. And it was when I was right out of high school and I worked at a music store. Um, it was Fountain Valley Music um, and they had two locations and one of them was down in Westminster. And I was working late night around Christmas time and my Dad comes in to pick me up because he's giving me a ride home. And there's a little player piano there, like a little Yamaha um, player piano that was there. And it was playing I'll Be Home for Christmas. Hmm. And my dad told me a story about how when that song came out, he was actually in the army and he was coming home for Christmas. And that <laughs> that that whole that thing, just that that little moment that I had with my dad and talking about that song that just popped into my head. So obviously this Christmas is, you know, that's going to play a big part in it, but it was really interesting how that, that moment was like, boom, it was just wrapped around music and it was so great. We had just a really good conversation and it was one of those conversations that was just, you know, nothing stood out. There was nothing unique. He just told me this little antidote and it's, it's really crazy how, Small things like that, small conversations become so important when you, you know, later on down the road, the things that you'll remember. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's really, it, it was just, it's just this really crazy time. And it's, you know, um, and once again, thank you guys for all your support. And, um, and we'll move on. Having said that, <laughs> let's move on. Um, and I got to open it up. Uh, we've got some stuff to talk about. Rob's going to talk about uh, his backup he has this backup 
plan that I'm dying to, to listen to. And uh, I know Brandon got a new toy. So maybe if we're lucky, he'll show us what his new toy is. Um, but right now, guys, we got to talk about what happened this past week. And that's the announcement of Apple, you know, going from Intel, going to the new um, ARM architecture, you know, and I went down to Micro Center and I'll tell you one thing that never left me and this is crazy, but I found a lot of like the gear bug during this whole process. I was still reading about gear and I was still tweaking stuff. So I don't know, maybe gear is way more important than music to me, <laughs> but I was just, I was still geared. So I went to Micro Center cause it, it's open and I saw the new Mac pro and I saw the new Mac uh, pro display. And let me tell you, I'm just so angry. I'm so angry. I'm so, I, you know, like who's going to write, who's going to buy a high end Mac right now? Because they're in the middle of this, this switch from Intel to ARM. And then where's that going to go? And also since they do the switch and they control the OS, like what's, you know, am I going to spend $6,000 minimum getting into Mac pro to know that maybe you can get five years out of it before they shut the OS off or, you know what I mean? It's like, what? <laughs> Wait, see, I think you misunderstand. It's not for you. No, I understand where they're starting from, though. The, uh, I had a long talk with um, the owner of Otherworld Computing, Max Sales. Oh, good. At NAM, and he told me that they're, of course, they do third-party RAM and whatever, upgrades, uh, GPU upgrades, all that stuff. I actually he, placed an order with them yesterday, oddly enough. They're, they're awesome. The majority of of uh, Mac Pros were actually going into scientific applications, and they felt that they could get ten years out of them. Even so, do you know if Apple? So Apple's at least committed to porting whatever OS system they have right now, ten years down the road to to the well, Intel I can't base. Say that, but I know the hardware was such that they felt it was upgradable enough that. You wouldn't have to worry about it for 10 years. It was a platform that, that would last 10 years. Well, if they, if they do a 10-year commitment, then that's more than enough. Because I, I figure you get at least five years out of, you know, when you put in that much money, you, you get five years. Like, I buy, you know, MacBook Pros for me, that's where I do most of all my um, content editing and, and working and stuff like that. So... I flip those maybe every two years or so, but they kind of tend to pay for themselves. Um, but the Mac Pro, you know, that's, you know, when I see those installations or I do those installations, for instance, right now with Martin, um, we're looking to upgrade his studio. And so I'm, I like, I want to go that direction, but I'm really hesitant to, you know, just to see what else is out there. And not, not only that, but that's good to know about the 10 years, but Here's the thing. I'm okay with the Mac Pro. It's expensive, but it's super powerful. I mean, when you read the specs on what you can do with the, with the Mac Pro, like editing and, and audio and all that, it's super powerful. I have a bigger problem <laughs> with their display that they're selling with that thing, right? Their, their, uh, their Pro display, the um, XDR, that in itself is five grand. And then the stand is a thousand dollars that's the insulting part it's so insulting even the monitor like the monitor has its place right because it's it's it it's really weird if, if you're going to do serious color correction they're, they're touting this as a mastering tool 
and it's not really a good mastering tool because the the off axis and the the dimming on the edges really kind of throw you know all that like serious mastering out uh, out the window. But it's really great, and it's six K, and then the resolution is amazing, and it does look good. But it's just you know, <laughs> I would rather go with the you know some of the monitors that are coming out um, like the Asus and things like that. Although Asus tends to be a little vaporware-ish, you know, they say it's going to come out here and here. But 4K doing the same thing, and it's you know 3,500 bucks. You pay big money for those type of monitors, but it's so ridiculous. Like, how much money do they spend on the aluminum and just drilling all those holes in the back? Like, what a freaking waste! It's it it's just to me. I don't know. I I just I'm and I'm Mr. Pro Apple. Don't get me wrong. I I love Apple, but I'm also I'm kind of platform agnostic. I can go Windows as much as I can go I can go Apple because I've I've built both and stuff like that. But to see them bring that out at that price point where you're going to spend just as much on a monitor and a stand as you would on your CPU. There's just something wrong there. Like especially for working professionals for independent and things like that. That's like I don't know. It's like, are you trying to force everybody to go Windows and Resolve? Are you going to try to lose all your your video guys? It, it, it to me, it doesn't make sense, and it actually got me angry. And the stand got me really, really angry because it's not that good of a stand. I mean, anybody else read about it, seen about it, have any opinions? Sure. I, my first question is to you, Bobby. Though that really, your conversation really surprised me, and this is why. Um, if I were a scientist and I was part of the academic community, I would be buying the fastest PC I could and then putting Linux in it. What is the, you know, it's surprising to me to hear other than them using, you know, the BSD Unix that's underneath the Apple, you know, underneath the primary Apple thing. It just really seems surprising for them to play, pay that kind of premium for something that's primarily going to be used for research where the mostly what you want is just as much horsepower as you can get. Can't tell you why I can just tell you what he told me. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I do know that there's a lot of, uh, Max in the academic world. I, I only know this because I have a couple friends that are teachers and things like that and they're using Max. So, um, I do know that they're, it, they're there and at, at, each max life cycle they come out for that moment they're pretty big beasts and that's why people kind of invest in them at that time because they are so stinking powerful especially the new mac pros man if you have all the money to configure it at, with with all the cores that you can put in there and with all the ram that you can put in there those things are beefy beefy computers but you bring up the, the thing is that you bring up a huge point mike which is that right now those things are running on intel chips right intel xeons i think and then yes, yes. so when at the end of the year they're going to be switching over to um you know to their own in-house built arm processors and you know what's going to happen because we've seen this before when they switched from motorola to power pc and then when they switched from power pc to um to intel right every time they do that a whole bunch of applications that were made previously for the previous generation of, 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 of hardware fall off the face of the earth. The small developers who don't have the, the wherewithal, you know, slash money to be able to convert their whole code base to work on a completely different CPU, you know, that's, that's where, you know, all of a sudden this stuff gets dinosaured, right? And so, oh, wait, wait, wait. But, but see, that's, 
not actually the case. What they're trying to do is they're trying to integrate iOS with macOS. Right. And as a result, most of the applications that were already made for iOS will automatically port. Sure. They've been thinking about this a couple of years in, in advance and have been seeding developers the tools in order to make it a smooth crossover. Well, not only that, but it works pretty flawlessly. If you have Apple Arcade, you can run Apple Arcade on your Mac, Catalina, and you can run it on your iPad. You can run it on your phone. You know, I have uh, Apple Arcade, and it's pretty amazing to to have that running. You know, on my the Catalina. I mean, I upgraded to Catalina, and 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 that I will say the OS is really good. Like the except for the fact that they, you know. They changed some stuff so radically and they, they dropped all support for, like we talked last time, for 32-bit applications. It's actually a pretty stable, pretty cool system. Now, like I had, it was pretty flawless when I'm working with like Logic and things like that. I will say with Pro Tools, Pro Tools still runs, relies a lot on the 32-bit QuickTime um, environments to do their all their video handling for Pro Tools. So I can't do anything with video. And there's every time I, I run it, there's a little pop-up that says, you know, you won't support, you know, certain features. Um, and things, simple things, like after I'm done with this, this gets recorded, uh, our, our podcast gets recorded as an MP4. And I can't import MP4 audio. It just it's, it doesn't work. So what I do is I import it into um, Ableton. And then I export it as a WAV file and go from there. But so it's, there's some really great things. There's some really not so good things. I don't know. I just, to me though, I, I just feel like in some ways, um, two things. I think Apple is kind of losing touch with not the high end, not the low end, but the working professionals. Just the right. fact that they, you know, I, I would be okay with them coming out with a really solid $2,500 monitors or $3,500 monitors. Like there are other monitors that came out back in the day, the pro displays that they had. But to come out at six grand for a monitor, like that's your only option. I just thought that was ridiculous. And, and you know what? I'm getting tired of the whole aluminum thing. And now they're drilling more holes and stuff. It's like, just do something else. And, and I don't know if it's because of their design, you know, infrastructure has changed with, you know, John Ivey leaving or stuff like that. But it, I, I don't know. I just think, I think, I don't think, you shouldn't say this because he's gone, but it's like, would, would Apple and Steve Jobs gone this direction? I, I don't know. You know, it, it just seems it's just so, they're losing touch with, with some of their, um, with some of their customers. And, and they're really making it easy for people to like go, oh, let's see what's happening on the Windows side of things because you can run the same applications. You know, yeah. I, I hope yeah. it's good. Let me ask you, Rob, one question I have, and I'm hoping, you know, the whole ARM architecture versus the whole Intel architecture, one has the reduced instruction sets, the other one has the complex instruction sets. Like, how, how is that going to affect performance on the pro-level apps that we all use every day? I mean, it basically comes down to what language they're written in because, uh, and I have not studied this yet, but the, sure. the whole thing is no one is sitting, there, well, very few people are sitting there writing machine language or assembly language code. You know, they're writing in some high level language that then gets compiled or interpreted down uh, to the machine level. So 
for a lot of developers, the language, the development toolkits are so good now that it may not look very different to you whether you're developing for Intel or ARM. Uh, you may not really tell the difference unless you're doing stuff that's really tied to the hardware where you have to get down to that level. Um, I mean, I, I just heard about all this ARM switchover stuff for the first time like, like you guys did, so I don't have any other insight. But if you're writing code in Swift or C Sharp or you know, some high-level language, there's just going to be a different compiler to take it down to an ARM machine as opposed to an Intel machine. And you're, most of it's going to be transparent to the developer. And actually, the only reason like some plugins and things might not work is because of the way they have to tie into the hardware. But the user interfaces and that stuff that are compiled from higher-level languages, the, the switchover is not actually that hard. Now, in terms of the, the switch to ARM, there was a, a former Intel engineer that came out today talking about that, and he said Apple was actually forced into it by Intel. Really? Yeah, Intel has buggy chips is what I've heard. Buggy, buggy chips. Oh. And they found so many bugs. Apple found so many bugs. They actually found more than Intel would find, and it wasn't getting better. So finally, they just decided, well, screw it. If we're going to have this much problems with a vendor, we might as well do it on our own and have problems and at least be able to turn stuff around faster. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, and they've been very successful, you know, as you said, Bobby, using ARM chips for their iPhones and iPads for a long time. I did have one, I, I did have one brief comment to make, though, um, about, the, about the switchover of the software. Um, I understand that it would be easy to, to be able to port an iOS app to, you know, this, to, to an ARM processor running, you know, on, on a Mac OS, but Pro Tools doesn't run on the iPad and neither does Reaper or Resolve or any of these big hardcore pieces of software that we use. So all of these things that are a mainstay of what we do, you know, those are going to have to be recompiled and, you know, it, it anything like that has Anything that ties into hardware like that, I mean, Pro Tools is a, just Flintstonian technology at this point. But, um, anything that has to deal with hardware interfaces, that's where things get trickier. Yeah. Like you could get the user interface working to pretty much any major plugin pretty easily, but getting it to actually control the DSP or if it's a native plugin to actually uh, run the DSP, that's where it gets complicated. Mm, that, that sounds like what if moving to an ARM, I'm just totally speculating, okay? But for instance, that sounds like in the winter of this whole hardware wars, um, if Universal Audio gets all their DSP talking to the ARM chips, since it's all offloaded to them anyhow, um, they could have a, a real easy switch over to an ARM-based architecture um, because of the way their hardware is so unique and outside of the system per se. I mean, am yeah, I reading that? The fact that the DSP is all handled on their hardware obviously divorces them from the CPU a lot more, which makes life easier for them. But they still have to communicate with the system bus in these machines. Sure. Which, um, but like you said, if they're using the development tools that are already there, they've built the, they've built the widgets and they've built the, the tools on top of the architecture of whatever chip they go to handle all that. So it yeah, should I mean, be... To give you an example of the high-level thing, like for the longest time, when you would develop apps for the iPhone or the iPad, you would do it in, uh, in a, like a, a version of C++. 
or Objective C, it was called. And then Apple came out with Swift, which was a, a newer, more modern language. And if you were designing apps for uh, Android phones, you would do it in Java and you would do mostly, uh, you would use editors like Eclipse and stuff and it had its whole, its whole universe to its own. And it was basically, if you were doing an iPhone app and an Android app, it was two separate projects and there was really no overlap. They were totally different languages on totally different hardware platforms. And then things started to move more towards JavaScript where React Native came out and you could sort of from a similar code base build things for iOS and Android, but it was never as fast or as tied to the hardware. It's kind of like if you're running a Java app on your PC or Mac now, you can always tell this is something that's not totally cool because it's designed to work on both platforms at the same time. And you can always tell when something's like 80% cool. Like it'll have some weird border around the screen that it really shouldn't or, you know, just something that makes you realize this is not a, a true native app. Well, now there's a technology called Flutter and I'm, I'm, it's something that Google developed and I'm actually building some apps in it now. And it's a high enough level language with great compilers under it that you can build iPhone and Android apps and on both platforms, they feel 100% native. They look 100% native. You can have different things. Like if you have a date picker on Android, it shows up as a calendar. If you have it on your iPhone, it shows up as those spinning wheels of dates. Mm. And I would defy anybody to be able to tell if they're playing with a Flutter app to be able to tell if it was well-written that it wasn't wow. sure. a native app for iPhone and Android. But the development time, it's not quite half because you have to do a little customization for each platform, but it's, it's pretty close to half the time of developing two different apps. And it's mind boggling. And it's just that it's, you know, Google spent a lot of time and a lot of money to figure this out. And Facebook was behind the previous attempt, which was React Native that was JavaScript based. But this Google stuff is good enough that I'm now building an iPhone and Android app simultaneously. And you won't be able to tell that it's not native on either. And it shows me that with the right high-level language and editor and compiler, first of all, the development process is elegant. Like it's the nicest editor I've ever used in my life and it's super helpful and super intuitive and it's beautiful. I run it on two 30-inch screens and it's just awesome. Um, but then the whole compiling step is completely disconnected from the developer. Like when I change a line of code on the screen, I have an Android phone and an iPhone sitting on my desk in front of me. And as soon as I make that change and hit save, both phones reflect the change immediately. Wow. And, and it's just the most fun for a nerd like me. It is the most <laughs> fun development environment because I just changed it. I'm like, if I want to try a different font size or a different color or a different layout on the screen, I try it on the screen. I look down at my phones and iPads. You could have... 20 devices sitting there, it'll instantly be reflected on both and it doesn't care about the platform. I have hope for the whole ARM thing as being that cool, where you can develop code and try it instantly on an Intel machine, instantly on an ARM machine and not feel any of that pain. And when I was developing code, you know, 20 years ago for different platforms, it was a nightmare of, of, multiple projects to support multiple platforms, but now it's gotten really cool. And if you look up Flutter, you'll, you'll see what I mean. It's, it's, it's incredible how cool it's gotten. Rob, you know what's making me smile right now is the thought of you when you first got Flutter doing Hello World and seeing it pop up on both sides. That's exactly time. what happened. <laughs> Hello, Rob. And it's all free. That's the amazing thing. The editors are yeah. free. The compilers, everything is just free. There's a huge support base. You can find out anything you need to you know, just by Googling around. So, and Rob, there's an, like an abstract IO layer 
that's above the APIs of both iOS and Android, right? So you like talk to a virtual window and then either side just goes and does whatever the appropriate call is on that side to be able to do that window with the, all of its idiosyncrasies. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, basically what happens is Flutter takes over the full screen of your device and they're doing it for the web soon too. But right now it's for iPads and, and iPhones and Android, mm. pad, Android phones. But what it does is it takes over your entire screen and basically plays your program as if it was a 60 frame per second movie. And then what they did is their engineers went in and replicated every single control that you have on an iPhone development system and every single control you have on an Android system, and they abstract that all from the programmer. So you're not actually using any of the low-level iPhone or Android code. You're basically playing a 60 frame per second movie on your screen that looks exactly like an app on your phone. And that it's is genius. And it's genius, and it really, really works, and it's... Most websites these days are, are developed, or yeah, I think you could say most at this point. They're developed in React JS, which is what Facebook developed, and it does the same thing. It it basically takes over your entire browser screen and shows you a website as a movie. Wow, that's Facebook did it first, but then Google by doing it second, they're doing it better. You know, number two always learns from number one. But so I have some hope for this ARM Intel thing even though at first blush, like you just know it equals dollar signs with Apple. You, you oh, know, yeah, you know, that pain with the power PC to Intel switch over. I mean, there's, there's no way we get out of this. Money. I mean, but look at on, on Intel side of things, what a big hit they're going to take, man. Losing, losing a big, big customer like, like Apple. Oh. If their chips are having problems and they're not working, they kind of deserve it. Like I, there was a whole article on Mac rumors dot com today about that that apple was kind of forced into this because i forget what the name was the skylake processor or whatever hmm. was just has issues hmm. i have one if, if we're going to go down this road i have one other question to ask and we can always you know edit this if this is too no nerdy. go down that road this is um, really good and nerdy. okay so here's the one question that i have it's it's not the the problem is that the fundamental philosophy behind a complex instruction set processor and a reduced instruction set processor is different, right? The whole idea is that with a complex instruction set processor, you have a lot more different instructions that, you know, the compiler turns into that machine code, whereas a reduced instruction set, there are less choices to make it, you know, to make it easy. Um, and the result of that is that you need more RAM, at least it's my understanding that you need more RAM to be able to uh, run a program on a RISC processor than on a CISC processor. And the result of that is that the, you know, the timing and, you know, the overall performance of the thing is, is different. I don't know that it's slower because of the fact that Apple is throwing lots of cores at it and they've got, you know, this internal GPU thing that they're doing, but it's certainly different. And it doesn't feel to me like it's, I, I, you know, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel to me like it's that easy to be able to go, you know, switch things between, you know, to switch between different processors that have such fundamental differences. Yeah, I mean, it's all going to come down to the compilers, but that's the thing. At some point, Apple is going to say, like they always have before, they're going to say, you know what? We've gotten to the point where it's inefficient to keep compiling this stuff for Intel also, so now we're just going to do it for our processor. And, and I think that's the big fear. Just hope you get a few good years in. Uh, with the hardware you bought. Now, having said that about you know the Intel and that, I will say that 
when I got my iPad Pro and I got mine last year, um, the 11 inch, that thing is a speed demon. It just runs great. And all the the apps that I throw at it are are nothing. It, it plays, you know, all the games that I want. It's made me a champion of Call of Duty Mobile. Like I I'm at the top of the boards in my little little world that I exist on. Not the top of the big boards, but you know, come on. <laughs> but no, but seriously, it, it has there's a lot of a lot of power there, and I never feel. I never feel like the old iPad experiences where you you feel like you're a, it's a compromised computing experience because you just there's a little lag or a little something. Everything is fast, you know, image editing. Um, I have LumaFusion, but I can't edit video on it because it's just ridiculous to try to do it on that. Although in a pinch I could, but um, you know, it, it's a it's it works, and I can see that now that they have you know support for a mouse and they're going to do a mouse and keyboard, it's going to be a little laptop. So I, I think Rob's right. I think you know with the the high level um, languages that they can come out, um, and with uh, you know, the language is only as good as the person programming it, right, Rob? Like, if the programmers just are really smart, they'll be able to squeeze some really great performance out of this thing. You well, know? The good part is there's, there's a huge community and, and inside and outside of, of Apple and Microsoft and other big companies that are developing the tools. You know, it's all about having the great tools. If you have yeah. the great tools, then you end up creating a lot more great programmers because the tools help them do things better. And that's what I've seen in the last few years is, uh, and it's mostly the free tools, although Xcode for Apple, you know, was always a pretty amazing tool. Um, but as long as they make the tooling great, then the, the applications will be great. That's, that's fantastic. Brandon, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about um, what I called you about the other day, uh, which is Hackintosh. I just, this came on my radar the other day that you can, Build a PC that you, basically that you can run, you know, uh, uh, Apple OS on it, uh, Mac OS on it, and you can soup it up even more powerful than the latest Mac Pro, and for way less of the price. What are what is everybody's? I'm just entering this world, exploring it, feeling it out. What is everybody's thoughts on this? Well, let me just tell you, that's <laughs> you read my mind because that's exactly where I was going to segue um, to exactly what the conversation me and Brandon had, and that came from the fact that Brandon's in a situation where he needs a little bit more power. He sees what's happening with with um, you know Mac. He sees the six thousand dollar buy in that you have to do to to get into the Mac Pro, and I just kind of want to open this up and talk about this a little bit about you know. If you're right now, you have to upgrade, like what, you know, I'm going to throw this out there and like Brandon did, like, what are your options? Do we, do you go with it? Uh, another trash can, a Mac pro, do you do a Hackintosh? Um, you know, I built a Hackintosh, so I can talk about that in a, in a second, but let's just throw it open to, to the panel out there. What do you guys think? I mean, if you're, if you're adventurous for me, this, the, the whole Hackintosh thing sort of falls into the life's too short category. You know, unless you really enjoy playing with that stuff, in which case, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a time commitment to figure out, you know, you want to really make sure if you're making money with this machine, you want to make sure it's really going to work and that you're not signing yourself up for heartache. My, my feeling with all that stuff is there's sort of two classifications of limitations for those things. One is the stuff that Apple puts in just so that, like into their operating system, just so you won't do this. So they have a bunch of safeguards that are just roadblocks 
to try to stop people from doing this. And they're not real limitations. They're just things Apple puts in to try to stop people from not buying things from Apple. And you can understand that from a marketing point of view, but that, that's the stuff that if you can get around it, it really doesn't impact the performance. But then you run into other issues, and I'm not up to speed on the latest Hackintoshes. I haven't played with that stuff in a long time, but you run into the other limitations where maybe there's some speed throttling on a bus that works different you know, on, on the, uh, the Hackintosh side than it would on the regular Mac, or maybe there's just some little tiny differences that are gonna throw off you know, the timing of something or, you know, there's, there's little things like that where those are roadblocks that Apple's not putting up to just not get you to do it. It's just that the, the Hackintosh hardware is not the same and Apple only codes the operating system for one particular path. And, and if your hardware is on a different path, you're going to get screwed. That doesn't scare me away entirely. It just tells me that if I were going to put together one of these machines, I could totally see doing it as a hobby but before I would trust it, I would pound the crap out of it in real world testing. I would run it as hard and as hot as I could for a week, you know, where you think it's just going to explode because you got so much. And there's plenty of tools to help you do that, benchmarking tools. And I would trust it. After that, I would trust it because there are good enough benchmarking tools to really run it through its paces where, you, where there's nothing in the real world you're going to encounter that those tools don't simulate eventually. And if it made it through a week of that craziness, I would probably trust it. What I found in the old days, and again, I'm, I'm going back a while, is in those tests, something would eventually not work. There would be some edge case of something that wouldn't work. And even if it only popped up, you know, one in a thousand times, I just know my luck. It would pop up right as I'm delivering a mix to like the biggest artist on earth for something that's going live on air in 15 minutes. It's like so, it always does. It's so true. <laughs> Let me just tell you from, uh, okay, I built a Hackintosh uh, a few years back and I'm going to give you the perfect analogy for me, but building and getting a Hackintosh is like buying an MG, right? An MG car. Like they look cool. And when you can get them to run, <laughs> you know, the old 1970s MG little convertibles, MG midgets, when you can get them to run, you're, you're styling. But man, as soon as those dual carburetors just give you any little, you know, any little fits, then you're stuck on the side of the road, you know? It's and a at tweaking. That point, at that point, you'd spend a million dollars to not be in that yeah. situation. So the money to save. Yeah. And Rob, you brought up a really great point, which is the fact that like I had it up and running and this was, I don't even know what OS it was. It was a long time ago. I had it up and running and I was running my music because like you, I was like, I wanted to get power and you can buy components and you have to buy specific components because they work better than other ones. So it's not like you're going to, you know, run any graphics card or anything like that. But here's the thing. Once you get it up and running, Rob was saying, it's so true. You've got... Apple that is chasing, like you're running from Apple at any second, just throwing a little bit of boop in their updates and then it's, it doesn't work. And not only that, let's say you keep it, you keep it rock solid, boom, you're rock solid. You're not going to update anything. And all of a sudden you have, um, 
a plugin that needs this part of the brand new Apple code or whatever. I mean, just a little thing that like your system may not have updated. You may not have done anything, but one of your plugins does, and then you can't run that plugin. And you're just, you're, you're basically, you're just, you're running from zombies. <laughs> you're just, just thinking about it. You have a knife and you're just running from zombies. As you a know? Hobby thing, I would totally do it as a hobby thing. I'm just saying I would not trust it until I'd really. I would never do it. I would never, ever, ever fun. do it. It could be fun. I, the first time I got, like, I remember I got uh, OS 9 to show up on a PC. I forget how I did it, but, you know, somehow went through a whole bunch of gyrations and booted a PC and had Mac OS 9 show up. I just thought that was kind of cool. You know, I just kind of did it to see if I could do it. And it ended up being a, a serviceable machine for a little while. But it's a hobby thing. Like, you wouldn't right. do it because it's the right business decision necessarily. It takes a lot of time. The problem is... And I looked into this a, a bunch, and this is why I would say I would never do it. Because Mike is right, you have to buy all the right hardware, and then you have to go to these websites and make sure that you download the right version of the device driver for each of the different components of the hardware to be able to make them work. And then the moment that Apple goes and does a system update, then you're out of it again, and then you're going and trying to figure all of that stuff out again with zero tech support, with nothing but you know a bunch of hackers on the internet saying, oh, do this or oh, do that. I, you know, I was happy with the way that I did it, which was by going and buying Intel server CPUs that were 100% compatible with uh, my cheese grater Mac and then going in and upgrading the CPUs and upgrading the RAM and the thing is stable as a rock because they're the same chips that Apple was using anyway. It was just the faster versions of them that you could get on eBay for a hundred and something dollars. So if I were doing this and you needed more power and you didn't want a trash can, I would go and buy a cheese grater you know, or think about this, go and buy a cheese grater from 2012, you know, whatever. The, I've, I've got one sitting there not doing anything. Go up on eBay and go take <laughs> a look at Happy Computing, I think is the place, and go and get the Intel, you know, the Intel server chips that come from retired servers. I think it's 2790 or something like that. I don't remember. But um, you can get it for very little money. It's scary because you have to pull off the heat sinks. You pull the Macintosh apart. You pull the heat sinks off, you pull out the old CPU, you put in a new one, and you, you know, clean off all the thermal paste and make sure that you put the heat sink back on with the same torque, with the same number of turns of the knob that you did when you pulled it off. But if you do that and then upgrade the RAM because it'll now run faster RAM, my thing is a rocket ship and it's stable. It's never crashed. I've never had any problems with it. Nick, that was the sexiest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> I'm too sexy for my computer, too sexy for my Mac. What do you think about that? It was so awesome on so many different levels. That was just, oh my gosh, I needed this. Thank oh, you guys. This, oh. is, this is great. Let my free flag fly. Oh. I, um, so Brandon, I, I, yeah. that's actually a great idea. I would go that route than a Hackintosh. I mean, you already have that's the stuff really there. That's really interesting, yeah. So but that, that even scares I'm not. I'm not as big as a computer expert as you guys are, so even what you just described there kind of uh, concerns me a little bit. <laughs> Screw that. Way less scary than building a Hackintosh. Yeah. 100% yeah, yeah, yeah. guaranteed. Well, let me just say this, because <laughs> um, we, we're going to get on. Um, we have some other things we're going to talk about. It, after hearing Rob and hearing Bobby, I'm not 
quite as scared about the future. I'm still, you know, I still think Apple is a little out of touch with some of the creatives that, that basically built the company, but I'm going to take a wait and see attitude. I mean, I, I love their brand new um, 16 inch MacBook pros that they have. I mean, those things, you can soup those things up to just little, you know, editing beasts and audio beasts. So I still like their, their hardware. So we'll just have to see, you know, where it goes. And, uh, and, if I have an old cheese grater, I'm going down the Nick Peck route and seeing if I can just mess with that. Hey, Go moving, for on, it. <laughs> moving on. Um, and Rob, by the way, thank you for explaining all that stuff. See, that's that's when Rob just like shines when we talk about that kind of stuff. You know, I'm living that stuff every day. So we finally got to stuff I'm talking. I do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> genius man. And speaking of genius man, we're going to talk to Bobby Osinski because, um, you know, before we start the podcast, everybody kind of signs on like, you know, five to 10 minutes early and we kind of have a talk and, and I'm we all talk about you, Rob. Exactly. <laughs> And, I don't do that. Sorry. And I can't tell you how many times uh, when we have these conversations, I'm like, Shh, uh, no, don't don't talk about that. No, 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 that's great to do on the air. No, ah. and uh, this happened actually tonight when Bobby was talking about some new microphones because he's going to swap out his microphone, and I and I stopped him. I said, Bobby, we should talk about this, you know, on the air. So, Bobby, I'm dying to find out about the microphones. Okay, this is kind of old news. I'm sure that you know that. Harman bought AKG some years ago. And for the most part, they let AKG remain pretty much intact and do their own thing in Vienna. Well, two and a half years ago, that all changed. One day, the dictate came down from corporate saying, okay, we're shutting down. See you guys. And they basically moved all their operations and none of the people to Salt Lake City. So now you had all of AKG that were out on their own. Now, when have you ever heard of something like this happening before? AKG, all of the people basically got together and restarted the company. This is 24 out of 32 people. They restarted the company under the auspices of Austrian Audio. So for the last two years, what they've been doing is They've been working on projects, uh, B2B projects. So they've been doing headphones. They've been doing microphones for other manufacturers, designing them. And they finally came out with their own line of microphones and headphones at NAM. So the microphone, they came out with two versions, and it's basically the same thing. It's the, the OC818, which is the new upgraded 414. And this is multi-pattern everything. And then they also have a OC18, which is just a single pattern. Now, it turns out that these microphones are about 50% under market value. And I think they're a great buy right now. And what made me decide that I was actually going to go that way was the fact that uh, I have a friend, Andrew Peters, who's kind of like um, the voiceover king of Australia and Southeast Asia. He has a podcast only for voiceover people. And he told me that everybody is switching to this microphone for voiceovers. 
So I thought to myself, wow, okay, so it's 50% under value or more, plus it's really good for what I'm doing here. Hmm, perhaps this is a good deal. So it's the Austrian Audio OC818. Bobby, did they say why they're switching to it for VO? Because I've never really heard of using a 414 for VO, a U87 or an SM7 or a Gefell or a 416. Yeah, but I've never heard of a 414 in that. I've, I've actually used 414s for voiceover, especially like for women. There's some women's voices that sound actually really, really good on a 414, much more than like even on a, an 87. So that that I've, I've done before. But... Um, well, well, the, the, uh, Andrew Peters has a voice sort of like James Earl Jones. And he's the equivalent of James Earl Jones in that part of the world in terms of, of voiceovers. He's the voice of CNN Asia. Wow. So that being said, um, they must like the sound of it. Now, all this came about from an email, and I'm supposed to be on their podcast in two weeks so I'll have more information then because I'll ask them, okay, why is it that good? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm just, I'm, um, so I'm, look, I'm looking at them right now and they're gorgeous. They're, they're really a good looking microphone. Um, and I know I, I have a sickness because I can tell good looking <laughs> products from not good looking, but no, it, it looks really good. And especially the, the one you were talking about, the OC818 with all the, uh, variable patterns and a thousand dollars it's you know it's less than and this is on Sweetwater it's less than what um you would pick up a 414 at so I'd be curious under market under market value it's definitely worth worth checking out I mean to get a pair of these I mean I like the 414 anyhow I mean you know you, you, that's such a great mic and you know people drums and all kinds of stuff with with that with that microphone but man you get a pair of these wow that's that's there's a lot of it's even better it's not like it's a new uh clone of a 414 or a new version of it in fact they went back to what they considered to be the best version which was the old uh, brass capsule version and they felt it was a brand new version of that so it's even better than what you can buy right now that I, I, it's Wow, it's a it's a good looking microphone, man. You get that? You just want to start like, all right, what can I what can I record? <laughs> uh, wow. Well, speak, speaking of which, though, uh, you get something and you want to record. I want to hear about Brandon's new synthesizer. Yes. Well, let's move on to that. All right. All right, guys. Well, I'm not going to be able to play. I don't have it routed into my laptop, which is what I'm zooming on so i can't play it for you but we can talk about it um so yeah after we had um glenn on glenn on yes thank you the uh i was excited and i went and watched every you know video i could find on youtube and it sounded great it, it looked great so i got it um uh, that looks fantastic vegas <laughs> mode is so sexy that is, <laughs> show. that is the coolest thing i would buy it just for that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it sort of goes into like, it's not power save mode, but so, so, something like that, if you're not using it for a little while. Um, it actually uses twice but, the power, but it looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. There's, there's one that kicks on. But it's, I got to say, I'm, I've already used it on a project, like I was telling you guys before the, the show. Um, 
and it sounds great. It's useful. And that's the, that's the biggest thing. It's useful it, uh, for what I'm doing in trailer music and sound design. It's useful. Um, a lot of cool things. The aftertouch is incredible. It's, I haven't, you know, I haven't had access to all these great vintage synths like some of you guys have, have had, but, uh, I haven't experienced, you know, poly, you know, poly aftertouch like that before. And it's, just to be able to have that, just lean into the, the keys a little bit and have it even just assign it to, you know, the amplitude or, you know, the filter cutoff. It's so simple, but just, just that gives such, you know, expressiveness in your playing. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, it can do, you know, pads really well. It can do more, you know, aggressive uh, bass things really well. And I'm, granted, I'm running it through my, my analog, my thermionic stuff when I'm recording it. So I'm giving it a little, you know, uh, uh, a little analog love there, but um, it sounds amazing. It's super accessible. Everything's just the way they, they lay out the modules here is super cool. The, uh, the ribbon control is cool. It's, I, I love it all. It's great. That is a great looking, great looking synth. And, and <laughs> I would, and I would buy it just for Vegas mode, <laughs> but it sounds the, the aftertouch though. <laughs> I'll tell you about aftertouch really quick because we're going to move on to Rob, but that is awesome. Is the thing that aftertouch gives you is it really adds a level of emotion. Wouldn't you say like, if you get like really yep. emotional pads, you can just really coax emotion out of that, out of that. Exactly. That aftertouch. Yeah. Fact, the fact that it, the thing that blew me away with that synth is the, the poly aftertouch is really, really playable. Like I have a couple yeah. of keyboards that have poly aftertouch, but they're not really playable. It's, it's sort of a gimmick and it's, you can do it, but it's not really something you do as a performance. But that keyboard, uh, it's actually a performance tool. Like it works really well. You can hold down a chord and then lean in a little with your index finger and then your ring finger. And you'll actually hear just those notes re react to the poly aftertouch and if you've yeah. never played a synth with that before it's very different than just like leaning in with a mono aftertouch it's much more expressive it's really cool yeah well cool. that's pretty awesome and brandon you have to have it set up because we should demo like maybe the next podcast i would love for you to demo that poly aftertouch sure. like that because that that is really cool um because i don't think i've ever played a synth with that kind of of aftertouch that poly aftertouch so it'd be really interesting to be able to play different notes at with the aftertouch and, and others. And let's shout out the name of the synth or the company. The Hydra synth. <laughs> ASM, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. All right. So one thing we're going to get to before our time is up. You know what I was just going to say at some point, Brandon, so use it for a few weeks, build up a bunch of questions. Then we'll, we'll get Glenn to come back on the show and we'll just watch you pummel him for an hour with questions. <laughs> <laughs> that no that's the thing though i don't have any questions it's so well made and it's so well done like i've been able to go so deep so easily with this yeah but is it waterproof <laughs> find out if it's waterproof <laughs> hey so um, a while back we were talking about backing up and uh and you know we we've discussed different ways to back up and Rob I was talking to Rob on the phone and he said he had he developed a really great system for himself for doing all his backups and I said great I can't wait till we get back on the podcast and let's talk about it and I'm dying to hear this because like if anybody needs a really good backup system it's it's you Rob so <laughs> yeah I, mean, I can I can tell you what I figured out for myself I mean so far it's working out great 
I mean, it's been you, get, you got six minutes to give us the go the runaround. I can do it in less than that. So I, like a lot of people, just have a massive number of hard drives and machines through the years. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I, I must have, you know, well over a hundred hard drives that have just stuff, which, you know, some are labeled, some are not. And I always, you know, say, oh, I'll get back to that and figure it out later. But I'm, now I'm sort of feeling like now is later and I got to figure some of this out because there have been some old files I've needed recently and it's been quite a treasure hunt. So I've got massive number of hard drives. They add up to, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 terabytes. I don't even know. I mean, just in my laptop bag alone, I carry around 20 terabytes. But obviously hard drives have gotten bigger than they used to be. But I got a, a zillion hundred gig hard drives and 120s and 240s and all that kind of stuff. And none of these drives were that useful to me because they were always offline. And if I was traveling, I definitely couldn't get to them. And even if I'm here with them, it was just, it was always messy to figure out how to deal with this. So I, I decided to come up with a strategy. Years ago, I had a backup server, but it kind of got long in the tooth and I gave up on it. And I thought to myself, you know what? I want to figure out what it's like in 2020 to build a new server for myself to use as a backup server. And I have a bunch of old cheese grater Macs and I pulled one out that I had actually bought to be a server years ago. I bought it used for some cheap price, but it's a 2008 uh, quad core, I think it is. And it had eight, eight gigs of RAM, and, but it was a stable machine and it'll run El Capitan. It'll run 10, 11, six, which only stopped getting supported about two years ago. So the operating system it could work with is not that old. And it has the ability to do software raids. So what I did is I had a, a stack of unopened two terabyte drives from a million years ago. And what I did is I put four of them in this cheese grater Mac from 2008. I used one as a boot drive and the other three I put into a RAID array that adds up to six terabytes. And this Mac did have a uh, a gigabit ethernet on it. The only thing I had to add, which is what I just bought from Otherworld Computing, was uh, a USB 3 card for it. So for 40, 40 some bucks. I did the same thing with my cheese grater, Rob. Yeah, it's, it's a good way to go. And then once I had this figured out hardware-wise, so I basically was able to build the server for a total of $40 because all the other parts are things that I bought 10 years ago thinking I was going to use them 10 years ago and they just never got used. So put together this server and then I thought, you know what, I need a really good strategy here because I've got a zillion video files, a zillion music projects, and also now recently a zillion coding and, and development projects. And even going back through all the Stevie years, all the software I developed and, and just archives of stuff. And I thought I need to come up with a way to organize this data so that I always can figure out where to find something. And after a lot of thinking and, and messing around with stuff, I basically came up with the idea that there are three kinds of uh, data holders, I guess you'd call them backups, libraries, and archives. So, and in, in the way I like to get through life is I like to have two to three copies of everything and, and like to be able to know where they are. And typically, if you have three copies of something, it should be on at least two different media. So like one could be in the cloud and two could be on hard drives or whatever, you can mix it. But I've divided my life up now into backups, libraries, and archives. And it's pretty straightforward how they're delineated. So a backup, like if I have my... Let's try to simplify. If I'm just using a MacBook Pro day to day, like we all are, and I have the Mac server sitting someplace else, uh, and I don't have to be in the same building as the server, so I can get to it over the internet or I can get to it on my LAN if I happen to be in the same building. But a backup is just a copy of whatever I'm using on my laptop. So 
my laptop is just synchronized with the server in a backup folder. And it's a one-to-one, it doesn't necessarily have to be bootable, although you can keep one of your backups as a bootable version. But I want to make sure that I always have two identical copies of what I'm working on, one on my laptop and one on the server as a backup. So that's a pretty easy one. And the fact that you have your laptop and the backup means you already have two copies. So to Are have you a third, using Carbon Copy Cloner? No, actually, I'm using a thing called Chronosync now because it has a driver that can sit on the server that speeds up the backups a lot. So Chronosync, it's a little tweaky to use, but it's, it's super powerful. I used to use Synchronize Pro X, but they stopped developing it. So Chronosync is the closest I've found. But so your backup is just a copy of whatever's on your working machine so that you know you have a backup and you can get to that backup online. So a library is similar to a backup, except you only have part of it on your laptop. So like you might have a huge library of sound effects or of video effects that you use or of old projects that you sometimes have to refer to. On the server and on the hard drive backups, you have the complete library, but on your Mac, you only take things out and put them back in as you need them. And that's why I think of it as a library because it's like taking out books and putting them back in. So in the case of a backup, everything's the same between the server and the laptop. In the case of a library, there's much more on the server and you just pull onto the laptop what you need. And you always make sure you have one copy of the library online. And then the third category is archives, which can be completely offline. But an archive is basically something you don't need to get to all the time. And what I'm doing is I'm keeping a small archive on the server so I can actually have one copy of it online, but you don't need to. Anything that goes into an archive, like the band that I was producing in 2011 that I don't want to throw away the masters, but I will never, ever, 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 ever need them again. Uh, you know, I may go back, there was a cool snare sound. So 10 years from now, I might go back and find that one snare that I remember was really cool. But other than that, I don't need this, this data. So it can be offline. And so what I've been doing is dividing my life into backups, libraries, and archives. And so far, that paradigm is working for everything. And what I'm doing is on the RAID array for the server, which is super fast, I'm keeping my backup and my library. And then on the boot drive, I'm keeping one copy of my archive and everything else, I have three external hard drives that are my third physical backup of the backups, the libraries, and the archives. And wow. this is working. It's, so far, it's been awesome. <clears throat> it takes a long time to you know, move all the data around at first. And as we speak, I've got a huge like two terabyte backup happening over the network. But uh, by dividing the data up this way, it turns out that everything in your life can pretty much fall into those categories. Like even think about your personal photos. Let's not even make this a professional thing. Let's say you've just got a zillion family pictures going back to whenever. You might have your, your favorite hundred or thousand or whatever, you know, of, you know, your kids as babies and all these other things. Some of those you want to be active on your Mac because you want to be able to show them to people or throw them onto your phone or iPad or whatever. They're a subset of a much bigger group of photos. So the full size group of photos lives in the library and in the backups of the library. But on your Mac, you have a subset of the library that you've taken out that you can use whenever you want. And whenever you take new pictures, you make sure to add them to the library so that just like returning a book, you know you can get them back out whenever you need them. So it takes a little bit of discipline, but it's not actually, I've tried to explain it fast. It may sound a little complicated. It's actually when you divide things up into those three categories. And for me, the categories are based on how many copies you have to have live at a time and whether it's a full mirror image between your laptop and the, and the backup itself. 
Did that make Rob, sense? that is genius. And that kind of parallels the way you divide your friends. <laughs> your active, yeah, I'm just kidding. Your active friends, your friends that are like you want to archive. My friends are old enough to be archived. <laughs> no, that actually makes a lot of sense because I think that's the way a lot of people need their data too. Because there's what, some data that you, you need right away and some data you don't. The cool thing about it too is it doesn't require a huge expensive server with 100 terabytes of storage because the whole, the whole way the paradigm works is the only things that are going to live on that server are the things that you either often take out of the library or are a backup of your Mac, which are, is never going to be that humongous. So you don't have to have a giant NAS RAID array and all this other stuff. I mean, that stuff is all nice, but if you're trying to do this inexpensively, I wanted to see if I could do this for basically free and, and put all of the effort into coming up with a clever way of doing it rather than go out. Because the other option is go out and spend ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 for a really cool network-attached storage with a huge RAID bank and, and just throw everything on there. But the problem is even if you do that, if you're not organized, you're still never going to be able to find anything. Yeah. So by dividing up the categories this way, it makes it really logical. Well, you know what? The thing I like about that and the way you have it worked is you just scale up into modern drives. I mean, you can get drives now to, you know, like I was telling you last time, I have, you know, 12 terabyte drives that are like this, this big. So for me, video wise, just replace those two terabytes with 12 terabyte drives. Exactly. And, I just didn't want to spend a penny. <laughs> yeah. And you, and I can back up all my, my video stuff. I, I, that appeals to me and uh, it's probably faster than doing the, backups that I do right now, which are basically through the desktop and drive drive. So I, I can imagine being able to offload that drive onto something else that'll do it automatically and I can still work here. Well, if you want to bounce it off me, because my biggest thing was I like coming up with processes. That's always been my thing. So if you want me to, uh, if you want to bounce the way you do it off of me and see if, how it would fit into this process, I'd be happy to. Because once you have a really solid process, it just works for anything. Well, absolutely. And I, and I would love to, uh, to do that because I want to, um, that's my thing is, is trying to get a better backup system than what I have now. And uh, so me, the, the whole key with backups is it's only useful if you can get to something when you actually need it. Like if something's living on a dusty old archive, as long as there's one copy of it online someplace that you can get to. Yep. I mean, I could be in New York and need some file that's in LA from a project from 30 years ago. I it's, love it's, the idea of being able to get back to that. Yeah, that's... But Rob, my question is, you said you had like 60 or 70 terabytes of stuff, but you only have six terabytes that you built into this cheese grater. So right. I'm, so a lot I'm of not that, following. Oh, because a lot of that stuff is just going to live on archive drives. And what I'm going to do is consolidate it so that I have three identical images of all the archives. Because that's the whole point. This stuff doesn't all have to be online. So the, the goal is to get as much stuff offline as possible because that's the cheap cold storage. And that is also the storage that you can divide between locations. So of all of the stuff that I've got, you know, the dozens of terabytes, very little of that is, is stuff that I need to get to on a regular basis. I just want it to be organized. You know, I'd love to go buy three 12 terabyte drives, load each one up with an identical copy of the same archives and then be done with it because I'm probably never going to go back to that stuff. Well, that's, that sounds great. And yes, we're going to have a talk offline. We're going to actually have to wrap this up because uh, I'm trying to keep this under an hour. Uh, and, and it looks like we lost Bobby, so I'll have to text him and make sure he's okay. <laughs> Hopefully there's not an earthquake in that part of the Burbank or something. Um, but 
Uh, guys, we're good here. We're all good, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm, I'm all the way down south, so <laughs> you know. Burbank is still standing. <laughs> well, hey, let's, listen. This has been really great. I'm so glad to be to be back, and I want to thank all you guys for your support. This is a really great podcast, um, and we'll catch up with everybody next time. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com audio at nowcastnetwork.com. I just want to uh, tell everybody just to be careful out there, be safe, um, do your part. And uh, these crazy times, hopefully, you know, they'll just be long behind us. And, you know, we just forget about this little dark period because it's really weird. And for me, it's like living in this weird science fiction movie. All right. Well, from myself and all the guys, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Back up your data, Joanne. Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbitier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time.